All right. Well, let me give you a quick overview of this text this morning, and then we're going to dive in and tackle this passage uh, verse by verse. What we're seeing this morning is Jesus beginning to conclude his Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount all summer, um, and, and there's a lot that we've covered over these past 14 weeks, and I can't summarize all of it, but here's the very simple gist of all of it. Jesus is speaking to Christians about how to live as Christians. Now, these are two very important distinctions. So there's a lot of imperatives in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives a lot of commands for those who are listening. And it's important for us to understand that Jesus is not saying, in order to become a Christian, you need to do all of these things. Okay, he's speaking specifically to those who have already been saved by grace through faith. We know this by the way that the Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. This should be on your screens. Seeing the crowds, he, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then it goes into a sermon. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those who know him, who are following him. And there are undoubtedly non-believers in the crowd who are hearing this sermon, just like there are sitting in this room right now hearing this sermon. But it's important to remember that Jesus' words are directed to Christians. And what's he speaking about? Well, he's talking about how to live like a Christian, what our lives ought to look like if we have indeed been transformed by saving faith in Christ. And as we hear the words of Jesus, it becomes very clear, very quickly, that being a Christian, being a Christ follower, involves a very intentional and active, lifelong pursuit of Jesus. Christianity is not something that you just sign up for, like a gym membership, and then you never actually go to the gym. Faith in Christ produces an ongoing, day-by-day, minute-by-minute building of our lives on the foundation of Christ. It's composed of hearing God's Word through Scripture by receiving those words and then living those words out. And this morning, Jesus concludes his sermon as he's landing the plane, so to speak, for everyone who's listening. Here's what we see that this lifelong pursuit of God, this building of our lives on Christ, it means that we have choices to make. And these choices have immediate and eternal consequences for our lives. We can choose to do what God is inviting us to do, what he's been laying out in his sermon in these past few chapters of Matthew and, and even in the rest of all of Scripture, or we can do what the rest of the world is inviting us to do. Now, one of these is going to lead to fullness of joy and life, and the other one is going to lead us into death and destruction. Before we dive into the first verse here, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you today for for today. I thank you for each and every person who is here this morning. God, you have sovereignly orchestrated infinite variables to ensure that your people are sitting in these chairs this morning. And so your greatness and your power and your sovereignty are not lost on us. God, I pray that you would help us this morning to see your goodness. God, I pray that you would expose in us any false narratives that we might be living by, that you would bring into the light any lies that we might be believing. God, we need your help this morning to see you, to, to hear you, and to receive your word. And so please, Father, help us. God, where we are hurting and broken this morning, I pray that you would heal us by your word. God, where we are weak and feeble, I pray that you would strengthen us. Where we're hard of hearing, God, I pray that 
you would soften our hearts and, and just allow us to receive your powerful word this morning. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would transform us by your word, God, and that your word would lead us to respond in worship of you, and who you are, and what you've done for us. It's in your beautiful name that we pray these things. Amen. Starting in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, verse 12 is a bit of a transition verse. The, the so that you see there as the opening word in, in the ESV and the NIV, it can also be translated as therefore, which is a word that is connecting what Jesus is saying here to what he has previously said. It's a concluding thought. It kind of wraps a bow around what Jesus has been talking about. And so the first question is, how much of what Jesus has taught does this verse kind of wrap itself around? So you can look at different commentators, and they're going to say a few different things. Some people are going to say, well, this applies immediately to what he has just said in verses uh, 7 through 11, about prayerfully asking God uh, for things and being in communication with God. Other people are going to say that it wraps up what Jesus was saying about judging others uh, at the top of that chapter in chapter 7. Uh, but as a reminder, as you're looking at Scripture, and you're trying to look at, okay, how does this fit with this paragraph, and, and where are the section breaks and headers, we need to remember that those section breaks, those paragraph structures that you see, even the headers in the Bible, those were not originally provided. Th those came much later on. They're super helpful for us in many ways. Um, these are added as aids for us, but they are not inerrant. They, they are not um, divinely inspired. So we don't have the original uh, notes that Jesus had for his sermon uh, or like PowerPoint presentations that he might have used then. He didn't use PowerPoint back then. That's not what I'm suggesting. So we have to do a little bit more digging to understand where Jesus is coming from. And thankfully, what this verse wraps around is actually not critical to us understanding the verse itself. Jesus says something that actually was not a profoundly new thought at face value, even for us today. This is another one of those phrases that's part of our common vernacular. It's the golden rule. It's what you see written on the wall at elementary schools as students go back to school this fall. But here's what's interesting. The early iterations of this phrase, which is popularized by the Chinese philosopher Confucius, he lived around 500 years before Christ came, it, it actually was the negative version of what Jesus is communicating here. And Jesus is playing off of a phrase that was commonly heard by those people and it would commonly be used to simplify morality, to really explain in simple terms what it would look like for us to be good moral people. And that original phrase was, don't do unto others what you don't want done unto you. Which means, and I know you probably uh, don't need me to explain this, but humor me. If you don't want someone to hit you, then you don't go around hitting other people. If you don't want people to lie to you, then don't lie to other people. If you don't want someone to bully you or to tear you down with words or to make you feel like a lesser human being, then don't do that to other people. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus would say yes and amen to that. But he took this commonly accepted standard of what it meant to be good, a good moral person, and he raises it significantly. Jesus flips this phrase that's focused on what not to do and exhorts Christians with, and read it with me there, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now that grammatical change seems minor, but the implications on us are vast. 
It is one thing to avoid doing bad things. It is another to intentionally go and do good things. So let me give you an example. It is easy for me to not cuss someone out, okay? Refraining from doing that isn't incredibly difficult for me most of the time. But it's relatively harder to take the time to encourage and to build other people up. You hear what I'm saying there? It, it's relatively easy for me to not be murderously angry with people, but it's much harder to go out of my way to be gracious and merciful and kind to people. Do you see the difference between the two? One is a lot harder than the other. And here's a broader implication of Jesus' words. If, if we are to follow Jesus, living as a Christian is not just about avoiding sin. It is about pursuing righteousness. Not just about avoiding what God hates, but pursuing what God loves. Not just refraining from being like Satan, but, but by the grace and power of God to be more and more like God, our Father. And this means that Jesus' statement in verse 12 here, it actually wraps around much more than just the immediately previous verses. Uh, and it dips into what we've been covering all summer. So living as a Christian is not just about avoiding the sinful judgment of one another, that's what we talked about last week, but actually being gracious and edifying with our critical uh, and necessary feedback for our brothers and sisters. That takes energy, time. It is hard. We talked about this at midweek this past week. It's not just about avoiding the idolatry of worldly treasures and being greedy, which is another thing we talked about this summer that came up in the Sermon on the Mount, but actively trusting God to be our provider and then actively practicing generosity with those who are around us. Even regarding Jesus' teaching on prayer, the focus is not just to pray that God would keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil, but the prayer itself is Jesus teaching us a pursuit of righteousness that goes beyond that. It says, hallowed be your name, God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That's in chapter six, verses nine through 12. This isn't just a minor point in Jesus' sermon. Look at the weight that he puts into this. In verse 12 again, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, in other words, the mindset, this mindset encapsulates it. It wraps up not just the immediate verses previous to this, not just some of the other parts of Jesus' sermon, not even the whole sermon itself. This mentality wraps around the whole Bible. And here's why. A biblical understanding of godly morality what is good and what is right, it goes beyond just avoiding sin. And this reveals something not just about humanity and us, but it actually reveals something about God himself. So we know that God is sinless. You see this in 1 John 3 verse 5. But that's not what makes him good. God is not only good because he avoids doing bad, God is good because he does good. That's what the Bible tells us the story of. It is not just the book of God's intentions but of his incredible actions. Not just the plans that he has, but the following through of every single promise he ever makes in the word of God. And to really understand what the law and the prophets means is understanding that it's not just the thought that counts. 
It's actually the execution of those thoughts at whatever cost that demonstrates the goodness and the righteousness of our God. And what Jesus is calling us to do as Christians is to be like him. And where the rest of the world might think that being a, a, a moral person is accomplished by not murdering, not stealing, and not cheating, Jesus is saying to be righteous like God means, yes, beginning there, but then going out of our way to be a force that actually builds people up and brings life to people, to actually be sacrificially generous and not just avoiding stealing, to bring light and truth into the darkness of this world. Now, a question for all of us is, what do you wish that others would do unto you? Think about that for a second. What do you wish, what do you want other people to do to you? And don't answer this knowing that you're then going to be signing up to do that to other people. So you're not allowed to say, I just want other people to leave me alone, right? That's, you can't do that. Really blue sky this out for a minute. Like in an ideal world, how do you want people to treat you? Maybe you want people to encourage you and affirm you. Maybe you want people to give you a, a thoughtful note or a gift to let you know how appreciated you are. Maybe you want someone to just invite you to go do something fun. Maybe you want people to truly listen to you, like to ask you good and thoughtful questions and then actually care about what your responses are. Another way to think about this is how would you feel really loved as a person? How would you feel really taken care of? How would you feel really valued? And then, as you answer that, this is the challenging part, how can we do this for other people? This is, a, this is the radical call of Matthew 7, verse 12. How are we going out of our way to treat others the way that we would like to be treated? And look, I know this is hard. It's not only hard because it requires us to go out of our way to do things that we don't feel like we need to do, but I also know that many of us feel some hurt or some resentment about some of these things. No one does these things for me. Why should I do them for anyone else? No one writes me notes of encouragement. No one asks me to hang out. No one asks me questions and then actually listens and cares about my answers. No one goes out of their way to care for me or to love me. And that might be true for many of us. But this is why it's important to remember that these words are to the Christian. And if you are a Christian, you have experienced someone going out of their way to love you and care you, care for you. That is the gospel. It, it, it's not as if we did something nice to Jesus and then Jesus came and died for our sins. This is why this command from Jesus is not transactional. Jesus is not saying do unto others so that you can have those things done to you. This is not karma. Confucius was giving wisdom that avoiding punching people would generally, as a result, lead to you being punched less. But this, this is different. This is a selfless, one way, pouring out of ourselves for the good of others around us, regardless of what that produces back for us. Why? Because it's what God has done for us. God's grace is unmerited, it is undeserved, and it's only by experiencing this gracious, generous, lavish love from God that we're able to graciously and generously love others without any expectations of, of any reciprocation. 
not keeping a transactional scorecard. It's the only way we can do it. Otherwise, we will keep score, which as a pastoral encouragement, if someone does go out of their way to do something kind for you, say thank you. Shoot them a text. Let them know that you appreciate that. This sermon is not about the receiving end of the gifts, but if we don't do that, and if we're also keeping score, we will grow weary in doing good for one another, especially when others don't do anything good in return. We will actually grow bitter. We'll, we'll grow resentful, and even we'll, we will eventually discard those relationships that we have with people who are unthankful, who are unappreciative, who, who don't respond in any way to our gestures of care and love. That, to our culture today, is a lopsided relationship. Maybe what our culture would say is verging on toxic, and, and that people will tell you to, hey, maybe you should leave these relationships where you don't benefit at all. Now, that might be how the world operates, but that is not how the kingdom of God works. Those who have experienced the gracious love of God are able to sustainably love others sacrificially and graciously. And those who have experienced God's love and, 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 and who resonate with God's heart of grace and generosity and mercy and who, as Josh Sprague said earlier in the series, can die to themselves and live for others, we're able to truly understand the heart of the law and the prophets. We should gravitate toward those lopsided relationships because God gravitates toward us, which is the most lopsided relationship in all of existence. Let's move on. Look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In this final section of Jesus' sermon, Jesus takes a step back from the specific teachings to focus on his teaching as a whole. And much like the sermons that you hear today from this very pulpit, if, if you get up and leave before the conclusion, what you might walk away with is some decent moral teaching, some wise words to generally live by, some good advice that's kind of worth considering at the very least. But here's the perspective that Jesus uses to communicate the importance and the weight of his words and the significance of our response to them. It is as if you are walking down the road and, and there are two paths to take and one entrance to those paths is wide open. You have like neon signs pointing you to, to, to go down that way. You have people standing outside that are saying, hey, come on through, this is the way, everybody. Let's go this way. Have you ever been to like a big event or maybe a concert like, or a sporting event? This is a site that is familiar to you. Maybe at the carnival, at the biggie, whatever that is. Like everyone is walking through that big entrance gate. And you might not know exactly where you're going, but you know that you're heading in the general right direction because everyone is migrating that way. But then you see another way. It, it, it's like an obscure little doorway off to the side. There's no light over it. There's no sign on the door. Hardly anyone is walking through that door. And it's even hard to get to because you have to cut across all of the waves of people that are walking toward the big gate. 
And that's the illustration that Jesus gives. And here's the purpose of the illustration that Jesus uses. Jesus says to enter by that narrow gate. Go through that obscure door on the side. The wide open gate, the entrance that everyone is flocking into, the place where it feels like the flow of people is just naturally pushing you toward, that leads to destruction. But the small side door that's hard to get to will not lead to destruction. It actually will lead you to life. Now, what is Jesus talking about? I think people will be scratching their heads a little bit as he's speaking. Is Jesus just anti-big crowds about something? That's not what's happening here. This is not Jesus articulating a preference for obscurity. What he's saying is, following me is not going to be popular. (laughs) My words in this fallen, broken world are not going to be intuitively attractive to most people. And it's going to feel like at times that, 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 that you are having to fight through the crowd, to get to that obscure door in order to follow me. It's not going to feel like or look like this universal movement that's just gone viral for everyone. It's not like, do you guys remember the ice bucket challenge? Everyone did that, which was cool. We raised a lot of money for for ALS, right? I think that was the purpose of it. But everyone did. Everyone was dumping water on themselves. I think Jesus is saying, it's not going to be like that. It's not going to be trending. Jesus says in verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. This picture is of a narrow gate. So picture a a minute like like a subway turnstile. You know those metal things that go like this and it's kind of like clunky to get through. So a picture of that and then after that it's followed by a long extra narrow airplane aisle. Have you guys ever tried to carry big bags through an airplane? Oh, excuse me, I can't get through. Commentators are, are, are going to use this or, or point to this as just a beautiful actual illustration for what it means to become a Christian. The idea is that there is no room to haul any baggage with you. That to follow Christ means that we can't take our baggage of sin with us. They must be left behind and repented of in order to proceed. There's no room for our pride Following God means humbling ourselves with the reality that we are really needy. Our ego has to be thrown away, kind of like a knife at airport security. I've thrown away a lot of pocket knives at airport security. Not because I'm trying to get them on the plane, because I forget about them. They're in my bag. And they say, would you like us to mail this to you or throw it away? And it always costs like $50, which is way more than the knife. And so we have to throw it away. It's similar at the narrow gate. You can't take anything with you. Salvation itself is also not a group experience. We enter one by one into God's kingdom. These are all reasons why this way that Jesus has been preaching about is hard. And contrasted with this is the wide and easy gate. This gate is spacious. It is roomy. It is broad because... There are no guardrails in this way. There are no boundaries in this way. There are no rules. Everyone can enter as they are. This sings to our fallen human nature. Garrett talked about this past, uh, this past week when he preached the previous passage, that people just hate judgment. They hate being judged. And what we love are judgment-free zones. And that's exactly what the wide gate is. It's judgment-free I think the distinction that Jesus draws here is that truth 
is not relative. What I mean by that is there is a right way and a wrong way. This is very countercultural for us right now. The wrong way, even though everyone likes it, even though everyone flocks to it, even though it feels good, it will ultimately lead to our destruction. We know this intuitively. As we look at our society, a society without structure, without moral absolutes like murder is bad or stealing is wrong or lying is destructive, without the ability to make an absolute truth claim like that, we would all descend into chaos. Now, maybe you're thinking, relax, Pastor Tommy, we have these rules already set up. We have governments and we have law enforcement. It's not like we live in a perpetual state of chaos. And you're right to some extent. By God's universal grace, God has mercifully provided some structure and order in our world. But the destruction that Jesus is talking about is not political anarchy. He's talking about the fact that when we continue to live our lives in sin, when we do not yield to the God of the universe, it will lead to our destruction. Romans 8, I'm sorry, Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. And sin is is not something that just separates us from God eternally. It, it It has immediate and practical consequences in our lives. Sin deteriorates us spiritually. It deteriorates us emotionally. It deteriorates us physically. It further breaks down our relationship with God, with one another, and with ourselves. Sin destroys And if we go with the natural flow of the world, if we do what feels good to us, if we take that path of least resistance, it might be immediately easy and nice for us, but it will ultimately be our destruction and our death. If nothing else, Jesus begins landing his sermon by saying, I'm not messing around here. I'm not just here to give you some wise teachings or just to be a thoughtful philosopher for you. I'm not trying to be provocative or trendy. My words are a matter of life and death. And that's what I pray you would hear this morning. This ultimate reality of of these two paths and the importance of the choice that we all have to make is not something that's new. This is something that we actually see all throughout Scripture. Here are just a couple of instances. Psalm chapter 1 verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. So you're seeing two ways there, one that leads to life and one that leads to death. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. This, is, this should be on your screen. See, this is God speaking, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And when you jump down to verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So hear God's plea in Deuteronomy to his people. And hear it again from Jesus. Go back to chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and, e- and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The image I want to leave you with is a funnel. A funnel. The, the way of the world is like the wide mouth of a funnel. And, and, and its job as a funnel is to gather large quantities of things and then consolidate them na- down into a narrow exit. 
And if you're not a Christian, it might feel like the world is your oyster. It might feel like there are so many options, there is so much potential, kind of like that open side of the funnel. That surely there are lots of ways to look at the world, lots of ways to look at God's salvation, that there might be multiple, many ways to God, but you will find that as you live life, that your experience in this broken world, even as a broken person, it will begin to close in on you. And you'll find that maybe you had big hopes and dreams that would give you ultimate meaning and purpose, and when those fail you, it will begin to constrain around you and feel like it's narrowing in. And when your friends and your family fail to love you and care for you, it's going to constrain in a little bit more. And when your worldview that was once just super unlimited begins to reveal itself as being very limited, that funnel again begins to tighten in. When you yourself feel the weight of your addiction to sinful behavior, your inability to be the person who God made you to be, that funnel is going to come in and in and in. Our destination without God is funneled into self-destruction. Many of us have felt the squeeze of this funnel in our lifetime. Some of us might even feel very trapped right now at the smallest point of that funnel. But the good news of the gospel is actually the opposite of that funnel. So you flip that funnel upside down. As Christians, we enter by that very narrow gate. And that is the hardest that it's going to get. Now, that doesn't mean that the rest of your life is going to be easy. Jesus does promise suffering and persecution. But instead of being funneled down into destruction, God frees us into abundant life. Instead of being constrained by the anxieties of the world, we are freed to trust God, to be our provider, to be our caretaker, no matter what those circumstances look like. Instead of being constrained by our experience of loneliness, we are freed instead to experience the loving relationship with the God of the universe who encourages us to pray to him and have fellowship with him. Instead of being funneled down by people not having any care or love for us, not having people to listen to us, we are actually freed by God's grace and his love to then go and do unto others what we would want done to us. Enter by that narrow gate, Mercy House. Even as Christians, there are going to be many times when following God feels like that hard way. There are going to be times when we hear God's words and they're not going to sit right with us. It might make us feel uncomfortable. We, not, we might not fully understand. We might not fully agree. We might not know why God is saying what he is saying. And we might think, I, I don't want to go out of my way to serve other people and not get anything in return. Or I don't want to radically forgive others and bear the burden of that hurt and that pain. Or I don't want to be generous. Or I don't want to trust God. These are all things that we talked about this summer in the Sermon on the Mount. And in those moments where we feel that friction and that tension and that tightening, the wide path says, we, we don't have to take God at his word. We, we can kind of pick and choose. You don't like that? Just discard it. Don't worry about that thing. But the narrow path says that we listen and, and we seek to obey God's word, that we seek out understanding in what God is saying, even if that means readjusting ourselves as opposed to rejecting what God has said. And th this is hard. This is uncomfortable. It goes against the grain of our culture, but it is the path that leads to life. And here's the encouragement. 
Even the hardness of this path is filled with grace. As far as hardness as you encounter it, Jesus is there at the gate. Later on in Matthew, you're going to see this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That doesn't feel like a constraining, hard, narrow gate. Look at verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The narrow gate is hard because we got to discard our own baggage. But the burden that Christ gives us is light. It's not just this flow of traffic that beckons us to the wide, easy gates of the world. But there are people who advocate for and will try to persuade us to take this path. Look at these final verses. Chapter 15. Be, I'm sorry, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And the answer is no, if you're not into agriculture. Verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Preachers come in all shapes, sizes, and messages. In Jesus' time, there are those who claim to have special revelation from God. They would preach a message and try to convince people of things, and the problem is that those things were not from God. They were manipulative, they were deceitful, they were ravenous wolves. We don't interact too much today with people who are blatantly preaching a false gospel message, but any message that places someone or something as supreme over Jesus, any message that gives us hope and purpose and meaning outside of the gospel of Jesus, any message where we are called to submit ourselves to it, uh, our, our, submit our resources, submit our time and our lives into something that isn't the God of the Bible is a false gospel that is preached by a false prophet. The question is not whether or not we hear false prophets. We hear False prophets preaching false gospels every single day. And sometimes it's from an ad on the radio or a commercial that we're watching that tells us that if we buy a certain product or subscribe to a certain service, then we will be ultimately happy. And maybe we hear it from our family, maybe from our parents, that if we succeed in school and make lots of money, we will ultimately feel secure and be ultimately happy. Maybe we hear it from ourselves. We say to ourselves and preach to ourselves, if I could just accomplish this one thing, if I could just get to this point, or if I can find the one, then everything will be okay. That is a false gospel. Now, I'm not anti-marketing. I'm not anti-parents giving us direction in life. I'm not anti-having personal goals or anti-marriage. But we need to be aware of these false gospels that elevate anything above God. We need to be aware that even though it might be trendy, even though it might be really popular, even within the church, maybe everyone else around us is doing it. If it's not of God and if we make it our God, it will funnel us into destruction. 
Assess and be critical of who you're listening to, brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus is saying in these final verses for today. The people we listen to might look like sheep. They might seem harmless and they might be convincingly kind. They might, it might seem like they are very well-intentioned, but whether malicious or naive, a wolf can do great damage to you and your faith. Jesus isn't just trying to scare us straight. What he does in these verses is he empowers us. He tells us to use our God-given discernment. Look at verse 16 again. You will recognize them from their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is a classic use of top and tail in Scripture where the author drills down into our particular points by stating it at the top and at the tail of the passage. This is a great thing just to keep in your mind. It's going to help you understand what the main point of a passage is. Do you see the top and the tail here? Verse 16 is the top. You will recognize them from their fruits. And then verse 20 at the bottom. Thus, you will recognize them from their fruits. So Jesus is making sure that this is the main point that we're getting away, taking away from these verses. So how do we get an easy entrance to the funnel of death? He says you will recognize them from their, by their fruit. I would go so far as to say that this isn't just for us to identify malicious wolves who are masquerading as helpful sheep in our lives, but we should be wise and discerning regarding who we listen to at all, who we take advice from, who we take counsel from, whose podcasts we're listening to, or or who we follow on TikTok, or who we're reading in our Twitter feed. And to that effect, here's a simple way to help make that judgment of who to listen to and who to follow. What's the content of what they're saying? What's their character? And what are the consequences of what they're saying? So content, character, consequences. So first, content. Is the content of what they're saying scripture? Or is it at least based on God's word? Are they leaning into the authority of scripture? Or are they leaning into the authority of another human? Or maybe even the authority of their own words? If the content of what someone says is is not at least based on God's word, I would say be wary of following them or their advice. Be wary. I'm not saying just close off your ears, but be aware. Next, what about their character? What about the character of the person or the entity? Are they exhibiting Christ-like character? Are they gentle and lowly in spirit? Are they humble like Christ? Are they looking out for the interests of others, or are they just looking out for their own interests? Do they come from a place of love and compassion? Or do they care more uh, about eternal and heavenly treasure uh, more than the, the, the temporary circumstances and the earthly treasures of this world? If they're not exhibiting Christ-like characteristics, I, again, would be wary of following them and their advice. Lastly, what are the consequences of what they're saying? In other words, what do their words and the advice that they're giving produce in themselves and in the people who are listening to them and are around them? Is what they're saying edifying to you? Is it building you up in your faith? Is it encouraging you to build your life on Christ? Is it helping you understand God better? Is it leading you to experience God's healing and his redemption? And if not, I would be wary of following them and their advice. We are all being preached at all the time 
But as Christians, we are called to be discerning, to be wise about who we listen to and who we follow. And we do this because we know what's at stake. The consequences here are dire. At best, listening to preachers of false gospels distracts us from our heavenly calling as sons and daughters of God. But brothers and sisters, make the best use of your time because the days are evil, Ephesians 5 verse 16. And at worst, they can draw us into the wide mouth funnel leading to death and destruction. So consider who and what you are listening to, brothers and sisters. Consider who and what you're watching, what media you consume, what opinions you eat up, what lens you put on to view the world around you. And by the Spirit, judge for yourselves the content, the character, and the consequences. I'm, I'm not exempt from this. On the contrary, the person who stands in the sacred pulpit of God's church should be held to the highest level of scrutiny. Whether it's here at Mercy House or your home church or whatever church you end up at, consider, consider the content, the character, and the consequences of the Bible teachers and pastors in your life. And if they're not preaching from God's word, if, if, if they are not living out God's word, if they are not edifying other people with God's word, don't go to that church. Don't go, to, and I, I'm saying that about Mercy House too. If we ever lose our way, don't come here. It's at best distracting of a time in church, and at worst, it is destructive. So let me summarize, and we're going to finish up for the day. The calling on our lives as Christians not, is not merely to avoid sin, but to pursue righteousness, not just to avoid doing bad, but to go out of our way to do good. I think this is encapsulated in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, just real quick. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Christian, do not grow weary in doing good. Not so that you can have those good things done to you in return, but as a response to the good that Christ has already done for you. If you are not uh, a Christian and you're here with us this morning, I'm so glad you're here. This is the good news for you right? This is, is helping us understand what God has done for us. And it's that Jesus has come into the world to care for and to serve you. And he didn't do this through writing a note of encouragement and affirmation to you, which by the way is the whole of the Bible. It's a letter from God that affirms and encourages and shows his care and love for us. But what he did practically was pour himself out in order to pay for your sin that would ultimately lead you funneling down into death and destruction. This is what we remember each time we take communion each week here at Mercy House. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The way that you enter into this, if you are not a Christian, is to take that narrow door. And like we talked about earlier, that isn't easy. It involves admitting that you are a sinner. It is acknowledging that you need help. It means confessing your sin to God and say, I don't want to live that life anymore and checking it at the door. That narrow door is not doing good deeds. 
That narrow door is not a class that you need to take in order to become a Christian. Maybe you're asking, where is this door? Like, how far does this illustration go to? Salvation is through a door. Let me show you what I mean. John 10, verse 7 through 11. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. I know these are the false prophets and false gospel preachers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. That sounds like the narrow end of that funnel. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The door that leads to life is Christ himself. I can't help but draw the connection to last week's verses, Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. Some of you I know have been asking and seeking and knocking and I pray, I have been praying all week that this would be the moment that God himself would reveal to you that he is the door that you've been looking for. That you would be finally given what you've been asking for. That you would realize that you found what you've been looking for. And that door that you've been knocking on is wide open in Christ. If you're a Christian, remember the door that you came through. Remember that door. Don't be tempted by the easy, wide, double door of death. Persevere in God's calling on your life and know that as you follow him, even in the hardest of days, the darkest of nights, that funnel is not closing up. It will open up into eternal life in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that your word speaks life into us. God, we confess that there are times where we hear your words and it feels like they are constraining us, that they are constricting us, God. And we acknowledge that that is because we are sinful, God. It's not a problem with your word, it's a problem in us. Lord, help us have the humility to acknowledge that. And by your spirit, would you transform us, God? Would you help us as we get further sanctified into this experience of living full life with full joy in you. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are feeling unloved and uncared for and unlistened to, Lord. I pray that they would experience that loving care directly, supernaturally from you this morning. Help the brothers and sisters in this room to exude that love and that care for those other people in this room, God. I pray that you would put it on the hearts of those who can receive it, God, to go out of our way to love and care for one another, just as you have, Lord. God, we need you to do this. There's not a world where we can do this by our own power, and so we pray that you would help us do this. God, help us to respond to you in worship now. God, help us to sing out to you and praise your name for how you have rescued us, God. Thank you that you are the door, God. Thank you that in you is fullness of eternal life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.